According to data by the FBI, nearly 40% of missing black people are people of color, despite people of color only making up about 13% of the population. But the Columbia Journalism Review created a tool that calculates the number of stories your disappearance would net based on demographics and found that missing black people only account for 13% of news stories, while missing white people were featured in 70% of news stories. So before we get into today's story, I want to share with you the case of Kayla Underwood. Kayla is 19 and from Las Vegas, Nevada. She's about 5'9", 130 pounds. She has short black hair and wears glasses. Kayla has bar ear piercings and she is supposed to wear glasses, but she does not wear them often. So she may appear to have difficulty seeing or squinting to see. Kayla went to work at Church's Chicken on October 25th of 2023 and has not been seen or heard from since. It's possible that Kayla is suffering from a mental health issue and needs medical attention. I will share her missing persons poster on our Instagram at mama.mysterypodcast. Please share to spread the word. And if you have any information on her whereabouts, please contact the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police at 702-828-2907. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. All right. Um, <laughs> so before we get started, Austin just shared with me this really sad and terrible story out of Oklahoma. Oklahoma State. It just popped up on my phone like two seconds before we started recording. Dead Longhorn found on Oklahoma State frat lawn before Big 12 title game. They play Texas this weekend in the Big 12 championship game. Police were notified just after 6.30 a.m. today of the dead animal on the lawn of the farmhouse fraternity, according to Stillwater Police. They said that it, Oklahoma State said that it was appalled about animal cruelty and that there was an ex, expletive, mm -hmm. curse language, carved into its side and the stomach was cut open. And they could be for serving, facing felony charges. So who do they think did it? The Oklahoma fraternity? Or? Yeah, the farmhouse fraternity. That is so messed up. Pretty crazy. Because I, I guess the reason I say that is because I'm like, why would they... I mean, I guess They're I can to be see cool. why. No, I guess I, I guess I get it. I just like obviously that's going to get into you, get you in huge trouble. Like, how do you expect to get away with that? It's a huge, huge animal. Who was the drunk idiot that said, "You know what? We play the Longhorns this weekend. Let's go get a Longhorn, kill it on our front lawn." No, who were the drunk idiots that went and collected a cow? There's more than one. Well, sure. We're saying the same thing, babe. No, we're on the you same said team. singular. Hey, you and I are on the same team. I don't know why you're coming at me like I killed the Longhorn. This I didn't kill really anything, Kelly. This is disgusting. <laughs> it is. It's crazy. I don't even know why I brought it up. I don't know either, and I really wish you wouldn't have right before we start this podcast. Well, that the, is really and, sad. and that, folks, is your episode, Mama. <laughs> no, no, that is really terrible. You were in a frat for like five minutes. Tell me about your experience. I'm not talking about that. I'm not in a frat. Should have never joined a frat. I went to Mizzou for a week and a half. I'm not talking about that. Continues to talk about it. And I left. We don't need to get into details. <laughs> I just ain't about that life. You think I'm going to... All right, I'm talking about it now. You think I'm going to go be someone's bitch as a pledge to earn respect from somebody because you're in a frat? They act like it's the military. Like, I should respect you. Like, you're some high rank and fought for our country and my freedom, and I should respect you. When really, you're just the upperclassman of this fraternity, and you're going to force me to drink and drink my own piss? <laughs> Screw you. I ain't doing that shit. 
So I left. Fair enough. I should have yeah. never joined it in the first place. I'm not even a frat boy. You know, I know that I probably have a lot of listeners who belong to sororities, and I know it's like, you know, similar but different because it's all about like Greek life or whatever. I know sororities, sororities don't behave in this way, but I don't think I've ever heard a positive story come out of a frat house. It's always about hazing or this type of stuff. Yeah, so. I don't know to each their own, but that shit ain't for me. No. Okay. Are you ready to get into today's story? Let's get into the show. All right. Today's story is about a girl named Ashley Pittman Scott. Ashley Pittman was born on November 4th of 1978 in Bossier City, Louisiana. She was tiny when she was born, weighing only about four pounds at birth. But from the day that she was born, she proved herself to be a fighter and an overcomer. Her mom, Donna, was single when she got pregnant with Ashley. But while she was pregnant, Donna met a man named Jimmy Pittman. And at the time, Jimmy had a five-year-old daughter named Keisha. And when little Ashley was born, he was just smitten with her. He was so excited to blend the families that he adopted Ashley as his own, loving her as if she was his own biological daughter. At the time, Jimmy worked for the railroad. He worked for them for 37 years, and he worked very hard to provide for his family so that Donna wouldn't have to work and could just take care of the kids. But because he was working so hard, he wasn't home a whole lot. So meanwhile, at home, Donna was really strict, but only because she just wanted the best for her kids. Despite his long work hours, Jimmy was a doting, loving, and affectionate father to his girls. Donna and Jimmy did the best that they could with what they had to provide their kids with a good education, strong faith in Jesus Christ, and a positive upbringing. From a young age, Ashley established some lifelong friendships with girls named Lori Machin and Erin May. The girls loved New Kids on the Block, and they spent hours swooning over the boy, ba boy band arguing over who got to marry Jordan Knight. I think they're going on tour again. I feel like they're constantly on tour, New Kids on the Block. I'm I don't know any other songs, but all that comes to mind is New Kids on the Block got a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. I don't know who that is, though. I think that's like LFO or something. I don't really know. I, 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 I was born like right after the New the Kids on the In the summer. Okay. I was born right after the new kids on the block were a thing. So like my genre was like in sync, Backstreet Boys, Spice Girls. I grew up to that too. Brittany and Christina. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it was like just right after the new kids on the block phase. But I know that they continued to go on tours and people go nuts over them. And they were so obsessed with this band that when they went on tour in the summer of 1990, Jimmy took Ashley and Lori to camp out all night so that they'd be one of the first to get tickets, knowing what a hot commodity these tickets were. So shout out to Jimmy, because I, I can think of nothing I'd rather do less than go sit at a concert around a ton of screaming girls, especially if you're a man, yeah. the father. No, thank you. So Ashley was one of those girls that just exuded joy and she loved to have fun. She loved making videos with one of her best friends, Erin May, and they would make these little music videos or just videos of them performing these stunts down the stairs, using various things around the house as sleds. They were just having a blast. Ashley loved performing and making people smile. She was full of life. She was spunky, just magnetic. But in the fall of 1990, Ashley's world came crashing down when her mom, Donna, came home one day and told Jim that she was leaving him. And she did this on Ashley's 12th birthday. Oh, interesting. Interesting choice. Yeah. Ashley was completely shattered. Donna left. And when she did, she left Ashley with Jimmy. 
Donna eventually got remarried and settled down somewhere in Kansas, and Ashley would visit her once in a while, but their relationship was definitely fractured. Jimmy did everything he could to support and love his daughters, and by October of 1991, things started turning back around for Ashley. She became the cheer captain of her middle school's cheer squad, and the light in her smile was beginning to shine again. Ashley had an absolutely beautiful smile. She was honestly just one of those classically beautiful girls. She had the blonde hair, the blue eyes, and the big, bright smile. But more than that, she was just a genuinely likable girl. She was like the girl next door, sweet, friendly, outgoing, just exactly what you would expect from a head cheerleader type. In high school, when Ashley turned 16, her dad allowed her to start dating, but he was very protective of Ashley because she was so beautiful and he knew that the boys loved her, but he wanted to help keep her priorities straight so that she wouldn't get distracted by boys. So Ashley and her best friends, they all attended the same church and they were very involved in their church and they all decided at the same time to make an abstinence commitment, vowing to save themselves from marriage. After high school, Ashley and Lori chose to attend the same college. The pair started at Wachita, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Wachita Baptist University in Arkansas in the fall of 96, and naturally, they roomed together. While they were away at college, Ashley met a man named Jeffrey Scott. Jeff was studying business at the time, and the two just hit it off. She fell for him quite quickly. He was a little more reserved and shy than Ashley was, so with Ashley's big bubbly personality, the pair really balanced each other out well. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey's upbringing was a little different from Ashley's, and I think that might have drawn her in as well. Jeff came from an upper middle class family. His parents were still together, and his dad owned an IT company while his mom stayed home to take care of the house. And you could say they gave off these like leave it to beaver vibes. Have you heard of that show? Oh, yeah. Okay. Another one from when I grew up. No, that's from like the 60s. What are you talking about? I just remember seeing it when I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever heard of the Red Green Show? No. That was another one that I grew up watching. I think that was from a long time ago. The Red Green Show? Yeah, me and my dad used to watch it. Oh, you're so cute. So in 1999, when Austin was only six years old. (laughs) And Kelly was 18. (laughs) <laughs> what, are you, what is the point? Because you say you watched to leave it to Beaver, and I just want to make sure everyone knows that you are really young. You well, were guys, born Kelly's in a cougar, and she's much older than me. Much older. And I like it that way. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, in 1999, Ashley went to Jeff's family's house to celebrate Christmas. And for the first time ever, Ashley didn't seem to make any effort to visit her own family for Christmas. And when they tried to contact her, she was unreachable. And this really hurt Keisha and Jimmy. They didn't understand why she was essentially blowing them off. And by her last semester of her senior year, Ashley was becoming more and more distant to Keisha and Jimmy. Jimmy tried calling her, but she wouldn't answer and wouldn't call back. Finally, he grew frustrated and he called the house where he knew she was staying and asked one of her roommates to leave her a message requesting that she call him back. So she did, but on this phone call, she told her dad not to call her anymore because she needed space from him and Keisha. Mm. This Red flag. Yeah, this totally broke Jimmy's heart. He loved Ashley from the moment that she was born. He always treated Ashley like she was his own. So for her to just dump him out of nowhere was like a knife in his heart. That same Christmas, Jeffrey proposed to Ashley, and she was just on top of the world. Shortly before Ashley and Jeffrey got married, Ashley sent her sister a letter in June of 2000. 
In the letter, Ashley told Keisha that she couldn't communicate with them anymore and that they needed to respect her wishes. She wrote in part, quote, I know that there is no way to address this that will bring you any kind of understanding concerning where I am, but I know that I have neglected my responsibility to be honest with you, and I am sincerely sorry. I've just been confused about the manner in which to tell you all of this, end quote. And she goes on to say that nobody truly knows her and that this is finally her opportunity to start a new life, one that she has always wanted, one that is stable. And towards the end, she asked them to respect her decision to place distance between herself, Keisha, her mom, and her dad. And this is all overwritten mm-hmm. communication? Yes. That's, something's going on. Mm-hmm. She wrote, quote, please don't try to find me. I am offering this letter to you as closure. And right now, this is the best I can do. Although I have no right to ask you for anything, I am asking you to believe what I have told you about my intentions. I'm getting vibes like whenever Brian Laundry was texting as Gabby Petito. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I do. But this was a handwritten letter. It was written by Ashley. Oh, so never mind what I said with my vibes. Okay. So Keisha assumed that maybe Ashley was kind of embarrassed about her family, given that Jeffrey's family was well off. And maybe she's being forced to write it. There we go. Well, it's down the same road, baby. Well, made it sound like I was a loon. No, you're on the right track, but just, you know, just hold that thought. Okay. So Keisha assumed that maybe Ashley was embarrassed about her family, given that Jeffrey's family was well off and, you know, quote unquote, high class. But this only added insult to her injury. They planned their wedding for June 9th of 2001, and sadly, she did not invite Keisha or Jimmy or her mom to the wedding. She did invite her two best friends, though, Lori and Aaron. Lori and Aaron said that they didn't know anyone at the wedding and that everyone there was clearly a part of Jeffrey's world, but the pictures showed a very happy bride and groom. After the wedding, the couple moved to the exclusive Memphis suburb of Cordova, Tennessee, just east of Memphis. Once they settled in, Jeffrey started working for his dad's IT company, and Ashley became an English teacher at Bolton High School, quickly becoming one of the most popular teachers. Her peers and students alike absolutely adored her. The life of comfort, security, and stability that Ashley always wanted and dreamed about for so long appeared to be coming to fruition. In September of 2006, Ashley went back to Louisiana to attend her 10-year high school reunion. Ashley's friends hadn't seen her in a while and said that Ashley was her usual bubbly self. However, they did recall that Jeffrey called Ashley a lot during the time that she was in her hometown. He would ask her a ton of questions like what she was wearing or who she was with, what was she drinking, who was talking to her. They could hear him through the phone and could tell that Jeffrey seemed very agitated every time he called her. And unfortunately, after the reunion, Ashley didn't speak to her friends for several weeks. Then one day, out of the blue, Jeff called Lori and told her that Ashley was drinking a lot and that he was really concerned that she was often drinking so much that she was falling down and then waking up with bruises. He was worried about her. Unbeknownst to anyone, Ashley was charged with a DUI back in August of 2005. She hadn't told anyone and they kept it under the radar until Jeffrey told Lori about it during that phone call. So after the call, Lori tried to call Ashley to talk to her about all of these concerns, but Ashley wouldn't answer, nor did she return any of the calls. And then on Thanksgiving morning of 2006, Lori woke up to see that she had a missed call from Ashley. She didn't leave a voicemail, so Lori tried to call her back, but Ashley didn't answer, nor did she call her back this time either. 
Later that day, on November 24th, 2006, Jeffrey called 911 at 3.46 p.m. In the call, Jeffrey said that Ashley was unconscious and she had been that way since about 11 a.m. that morning. He said that she was bleeding from her nose, but that she was still breathing. Jeffrey called his doctor friend first to come check on Ashley, and he arrived at the house at 3.45. Dr. McGee later testified that when Jeffrey called him, he started the conversation saying, how are you? What are your plans for the rest of the day? And after... Huh? I said that. I said, what? That's weird. Yeah. She's calling for an emergency and he's just checking in though first on what he's up to. Right. Yeah. And um, also after Dr. McGee answered, he asked if he could just come over and check on his wife because he had some concerns. And Dr. McGee said that there was an element of concern, but no element of urgency. When he arrived at the Scott's house, the moment he saw Ashley, he told Jeff to call 911. So it's disconcerting to me that Jeffrey didn't call 911 first. He called his doctor friend to come check on her, mm-hmm. which indicates to me he knows something is wrong, but like you're avoiding 911 at all costs. According to Dr. McGee's testimony, Jeffrey told Dr. McGee on the phone that Ashley was not acting right. Dr. McGee asked him if they had been drinking and Jeff said yes. And Dr. McGee said that Jeff asked him to come alone. After a discussion with his wife, who was in the car with him at the time of the phone call, Dr. McGee called Jeff back to get more information, and Jeff responded by repeating his request that Dr. McGee come over to his house. And in order to get to the Scott's house faster, Dr. McGee took his family to his parents' house, let his wife take his car, and then just borrowed his parents' car. So then when he got to the Scott's house, he met Jeff in the den. It's just another red flag that he's like, just come alone. Don't bring your family. Don't bring your wife. Mm -hmm. So when he gets there, he meets Jeff in the den. Jeff pointed to or pointed Dr. McGee to their bedroom where Dr. McGee found Ashley lying on the floor next to the bed. He testified that Ashley was, quote, very bruised and beaten. He said that he asked Jeff what happened and Jeff responded that they had gotten into an argument. Dr. McGee checked the victim's pulse and told Jeff to call 911. So during the phone call, the dispatcher was in disbelief, but Jeffrey said that his friend Roger McGee was a doctor and was with him helping him out. And on the 911 call, Dr. McGee could be heard in the background saying, she's dead. And when the dispatcher heard the doctor say she's dead, she asked Jeffrey, did he just say that she was dead? And he nonchalantly says, yes. And the dispatcher says, you told me she was breathing. And he responds just like this. Well, she was just a second ago. The dispatcher could be heard talking to another dispatcher on the line saying that that was the most shocking 911 call she had ever had. And both of them were very disturbed by it. The EMS arrived soon after the 911 call and found Dr. McGee performing CPR on Ashley in an upstairs bedroom. She had blood and vomit coming from her mouth and nose, blood coming from her ears. She had bloody vomit all over herself. Her lips were swollen and split open. Good Lord. And she had a very faint pulse. She had injuries to her legs, her chest, and her back as well. And the injury to her back was a bruise in the form of a shoe print. It was very clear that she had been severely beaten. When they asked Jeff what happened, he admitted that they had gotten into an argument over a text message on Ashley's phone, and the argument turned physical, but they also noted that he had virtually no injuries while she was beaten so severely. Paramedics rushed her to the hospital, but by the time she got there, it was too late. 
Ashley was pronounced dead at 7.52 p.m. on Thanksgiving Day. Jeffrey had told the police that he had seen a text message on Ashley's cell phone and was upset by it. Jeffrey admitted to striking Ashley, but said that she tripped and fell because she'd had a lot to drink. Oh my gosh, the old she fell down. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey said that the argument started the night before and he kicked Ashley out of the house. He had left her in the garage around 1 a.m. and went to check on her the next morning at 9 a.m. That's when he found her unconscious, so he took her back inside, leaving her in the den for a few hours before eventually carrying her to the upstairs bedroom. Well, he didn't even carry her, actually. He dragged her up there, and then he left her there for another few hours before he finally contacted Dr. McGee. The police were not buying it. Ashley was bruised from head to toe, which is what the autopsy report said as well. Her autopsy report revealed that she had a fractured skull, brain swelling, and a shoe print found on her torso. It was clear she had been beaten and stomped to death. The brain swelling was so bad that it pushed her brain stem down into her spinal column. <sighs> Jeffrey Scott was arrested on the scene, and initially he was charged with aggravated assault, but the charges were then upgraded to first-degree murder after she died. During the investigation, they learned more about the truth behind Ashley and Jeff's marriage. The police obtained Ashley's phone records and learned that Ashley had tried to contact her friend Lori a week before she died. Just a few weeks before that, Ashley had called Lori from a closet and told Lori that she and Jeffrey had gotten into an argument, and Lori said that she had no idea that Ashley and Jeffrey had this type of marriage. Investigators also contacted Elizabeth Schism, who worked with Ashley closely. Elizabeth testified that Ashley told her the previous year in 2005 that she was refusing to go to Thanksgiving dinner that year because her and Jeff were not getting along. She confided in Elizabeth that Jeff had tried to choke her before and that he was also so obsessed with porn that he would refuse to kiss her. She would ask him to kiss her and he would refuse. And then in January of 2006, Ashley called Elizabeth and asked her to cover for her because she had checked in a hotel to get away from Jeff and possibly meet someone there. She needed Elizabeth to cover for her by telling Jeff that she would just be staying at her house. So by then it kind of became clear that Ashley may have been exploring the idea of having an affair to escape the marriage. Just a few months later, Ashley had also learned that Jeffrey had invited sex workers to his home while she was away at that high school reunion. She did or he did? He did. He had. So they're both. So they're both screwing around on yes, each other. Yes. That's the point. Yes. Jeffrey also had a long term affair with a co-worker named Blair Brown. Blair and Ashley had even been friends at one point, And Blair started working for Jeff's father's IT company back in March of 2000. From 2002 to 2005, Blair and Jeff had a sexual relationship. And this is super messy because while Blair was having an affair with Jeff, she was friends with Ashley. And there was one time when Ashley came to Blair's house to get away from Jeff. Ashley at that time had no idea that Jeff and Blair were actually having a relationship at that point. But when Ashley came to her house to escape Jeff, Jeff showed up at Blair's house in a drunken rage, and Blair testified that she watched as Jeff punched Ashley three times repeatedly in the back. Blair said that she was going to call the police, but Ashley asked her not to, which that's very common in domestic uh, violence yeah. situations. Mm -hmm. Once her affair with Jeffrey ended, Jeffrey told Ashley about the affair, but she and Ashley eventually rekindled their friendship, I guess. I'm not sure if I really believe that, especially once I learned 
that during Blair's testimony, she admitted that there was a time when Ashley came to Blair's house with a man named Mr. Lowe. And while Ashley and Mr. Lowe were in Blair's guest bedroom, Blair called Jeff to tell him to come to her house so that he could catch Ashley with Mr. Lowe. So you've witnessed with your own eyes how violent Jeff gets with Ashley, and you're literally going to add fuel to the fire by setting her up. Mm-hmm. Like some friend. Like you're cheating. <laughs> some friend, Blair. I hope you're listening to this. Oh, man. I don't. <laughs> I don't really care if she's listening. The autopsy had revealed that there were several older injuries on Ashley's body as well. So it was clear that Jeffrey had been abusive for some time. The day before Ashley died, she had met with her divorce attorney. The day before she died. The divorce attorney, her name is Rachel Songstad. And Ashley told her that she had the filing fee money ready to go. She was ready to file for divorce. Rachel told her to pack her things and just leave immediately. And Ashley had been packing for a while and her clothing was even found in the trunk of her car as if she was preparing to leave the night she was attacked. That's wild. Ashley told her attorney that she felt compelled to to tell Jeffrey that she was leaving. But statistics show that the risk of injury or death greatly increases when you tell your abuser your intent to leave. At Jeffrey's trial, the prosecution talked about the timeline of the murder, and it was clear that the argument started in the living room where a broken vase had been found. Then Ashley was beaten all throughout the house and left behind blood in almost every room. She was admittedly left in the garage from about 1 a.m. to 9 a.m. Then he dragged her to the den, and then she was left there for a few hours before being dragged to the bedroom where he left her on the floor near their bed. He didn't even put her in bed. He just left her on the floor. The prosecution noted Ashley had been unconscious for 12 to 15 hours before Jeffrey ever called 911. It's insane. Jeffrey's defense team tried to paint Ashley as an alcoholic who just drank way too much the night before and fell, causing all of her injuries. But obviously the jury wasn't going to buy it. And on January 19th of 2009, Jeffrey Scott was convicted of second degree murder. It was a vote of 12 to 1 in favor of first-degree murder, but in Tennessee, it has to be a unanimous vote to convict someone of first-degree murder. So just because one person didn't see it as first-degree murder, they had to convict him of second. And the judge criticized the jury for not coming up with the verdict of first-degree murder, as this was such a clear-cut case. Mm-hmm. Ashley's family, family was also not happy with the results, understandably so. Jeffrey was sentenced to 25 years without the possibility of parole. Now, it's clear that Jeffrey isolated Ashley from everyone, which is a telltale sign of abuse. He convinced, even brainwashed her into thinking that her family wasn't good enough to be a part of their life. And her father, Jimmy, says that he just wishes he could hear Ashley tell him that she loved him just one more time. He said, quote, this is always going to be hard. I loved that little girl. If she had died of natural causes, I could deal with that. But he called 911 like he was ordering breakfast. Mm. A life sentence was not possible for second-degree murder, but criminal court judge James Lammy Jr. sentenced him to the maximum of 25 years without parole, and he's serving his time at the Bledsoe County Correctional Complex in Pikeville, Tennessee, where he will remain until 2030. It's not even long. No. During the sentencing phase, Jeffrey addressed the court saying, quote, I am sorry for the hurt you are feeling. I am grieving for her loss and I pray for her soul. I feel like that's such a cop out because it's like, sorry, you feel that way. 
Mm-hmm. Not, sorry, I did the things that made you feel that way. Right. No taking responsibility or ownership. No. I'm sorry you're upset. Right. Yeah. His father, Ray Scott, said that he loved... I, I, sorry. I was just thinking of like people's bullshit apologies because this show is filled of them, filled mm-hmm. with them. Like these these episodes, it's always like, I'm sorry that... I'm sorry that what happened transpired. Mm-hmm. When like, well, you're sorry for what you did or no. It's like saying... I think we both said some things we shouldn't have <laughs> like, yeah. rather than saying, I'm sorry for what I said, or I'm sorry for what I did. It's just crazy. Right. His father, Ray Scott said that he loved Ashley like a daughter and that his son still has his picture in his bedroom, which I think he meant jail cell. He said he did not know about the problems in the marriage. He testified Quote, I love him unconditionally. If I could take his place, I would every moment of his life. He thinks about what happened End quote. As I hope he would, I hope he is reminded every day of what he did to this woman that he was married to. I hope he thinks daily about the fact that he had absolutely no injuries. He just beat her like she was nothing. I have a feeling he doesn't think about that ever. I think you're honestly right. I think that his dad saying that is just something he says to make his own self feel better. Yeah. The fact that he's getting out in 2030 is really, really disappointing. The fact that this kind of shit goes on every day, multiple times a day all over the world is really disappointing. Like mm-hmm. domestic violence like this, abusers, it's just crazy. It's it's like, it's it's an epidemic, really. Yeah, it's very, very sad. And I don't know. I think it's a scary situation to be in. I have no idea what it's like because I've thankfully never been in a situation like this. I just only know that if you can surround yourself with resources or people to help you get out of the situation, just know that the resources are there and people are there to help you get, there are resources. There are people who want to help are, you but get it's, out of it's it. It's a deep brainwashed pit I know. that these people get into. And it's not something that, I don't know. It's just crazy. I, I just say if you're easy. in it, if you're in it, I don't even know. I, I mean, I've been around it in my life without talking about it. I've been around uh, abusive people, mm-hmm. and it's it's so I've seen it firsthand and watched it, and it's like, you know, I don't even know what you'd say to them. The resources are there. Everybody knows that. It's just, God, you're worth more than what you're going through, you know? Yeah. It's crazy. Anyways. Well, that's it for this week, and we will see you next week, hopefully with a hey, video Hey, I'll tell again. you a wild story real quick. Yeah, tell me. The Golden Gate Bridge was constructed in the 1930s for $35 million. Okay. They just got done installing suicide nets underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Did you know that? I think I heard something like that. And I watched a documentary called The Bridge. And it literally was like this documentary where this guy set up a camera and it just continuously recorded the bridge for like a year and it recorded all these people jumping off. Yeah. So they put in suicide nets. So, and I don't know, I don't like, great. I think that's good. Whatever. Um, the part that's crazy is, you know what they spent on the suicide nets? Hmm. Leave it to the state of California. And hope I don't offend any listeners, but actually you already know. So they spent $400 million on the nets. Okay, so back in the 30s, they spent $35 million to build it. To build a bridge. Mm-hmm. What would that equate to in today's money? Who knows? Maybe it's $400 million, but they spent $400 million on nets. I mean, that does sound like a lot of money for nets. Somebody's padding their pockets. Somebody's probably padding their pockets. I'm glad the nets are there. Yeah. Mama. Mystery. Out. Bye.